Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Arrival and our top three segment for our favorite intellectual sci-fi films. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. What might be called first contact. The objects measure at least... I'm Colonel G.T. Webber from the Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Denis Villeneuve's latest film, Arrival. The story goes, Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, is a linguistic professor who leads an elite team of investigators when humongous spaceships touch down in 12 locations around the world. As nations teeter on the verge of global war, Banks and her crew must race against time to find a way to communicate with the extraterrestrial visitors. Hoping to unravel the mystery, she takes a chance that could threaten her life and quite possibly all of mankind. The cast includes Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Zima. As I said before, this film is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who has also directed films such as Prisoners, Sicario, and Incendies. Let's start it off with you first, Michael. What did you think of Arrival? Oh, you're putting me right up first. So, Arrival, a film that I seem to uh, differ on from a lot of people in the film community right now. I think it is a very handsomely mounted film. I think it is very well directed. I think there's really a lot going for it in this film that is uh, ambitious in terms of tone, style, story. There's a lot to appreciate here. And in fact, I would go as far to say that there's really nothing wrong with this movie. The thing is, I just found myself watching it and failing to connect with what it was telling me, even at times failing to really grasp the story it was telling. It took me a little bit afterwards to go back and sort of piece everything together to understand what it meant. And once I did that, I was just sort of left cold by it. I I don't want to use this as a knock on the film at all. I really appreciate everything going on here. It's more of just uh, myself as a viewer failing to find a way to go into what it was trying to sell to me. Well, let me ask you this question. In the wake of what has happened on Tuesday, since then, and seeing how divided as a country we all are right now, you just have to look at your own social media feed to understand what is exactly going on. I mean, like, how does the concept of unity and teamwork and everybody just working together in the face of such adversity like that didn't speak to you uh, i saw it but i wasn't able to see the connection like 
in that way. Maybe it's because we're still so fresh off of what happened this week and everything going on in the streets right now that I was just looking at it more as a movie rather than a social metaphor. But when you talk about like the power of teamwork and everything and something like that in a film, I think more of like The Martian last year and how that incorporated that theme. And I just personally, this is just me. I don't want to say it's how it goes for anyone else, just to be clear. But I don't know. I just got more out of something like The Martian than I did the teamwork aspect of this. I mean, this is really not subtle about the teamwork being important part of the film, though. I mean, like, that is the whole message of the film, that people can't cut off communication and need to work together. I would say that is very much still present here, even if it's more the conflict of the film is people learning to work together. I think in The Martian, it's more just a given that people will work together. Whereas here, you know, it's it's a film about learning to do so. And I think that's maybe what makes it more timely. Interesting. This is a very stately film. And it's, uh, I was talking to someone who compared it to Stanley Kubrick in a way. And I definitely see that. Like, would you agree in terms of what they're going for? Some aspects of it, sure. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of Stanley Kubrick's work, there are many of his films that I love. But there are a few that, I mean, people regard as masterpieces that when I watch them, I go, yeah, this is really great in terms of, direction and style but it just leaves me feeling hollow by the end and of course nobody wants to feel it after a film that everyone else is like acclaiming but you know sometimes it just happens where you see something and you go why didn't that do more for me was it me was it the film what was it mm. interesting uh will what do you think do you agree with michael um i'm gonna be in between the two of you probably so i am a sucker for intellectual science fiction um i understand the nature of big sci-fi films is that the story tends to be more important than the characters but i think a shortcoming of this film for me is that it is very thin on any sort of character development if i ask you to tell me one thing about jeremy renner's character other than the fact he's good at math I don't think you can. Also, um, the twist of the film, which we're not going to go into here, I assume, because of spoilers. Oh, we'll have a spoiler section now. Well, in the meantime, I will say the twist robs Amy Adams' character of most of her defining character characteristics or anything you can really tell me about her until basically the end of the film. Um, And I felt like the characters were underwritten. That was a problem for me. Oh, and also the emotional climax of the film, I thought I was really getting into it and was undercut by two just horrendous lines from Jeremy Renner, which I guess I'll go ahead and say, you know, throughout the film, there's one or two hints of, you know, romantic attraction between Amy Adams and Renner. I didn't feel like that was earned or well-established, and a line Jeremy Renner uses towards the end of the film regarding that was astonishingly bad. And then his final line in the film, my theater burst out laughing because of both his voice and just how it was awkwardly phrased. I've now said the things I didn't like about the film. I will still say it was great. Um, It is incredibly well shot villain news direction is remarkable the cinematography is stunning the sound is great with the eerie chirping of the bird the way certain sound effects act as natural transitions between scenes it's well edited you know there's 
it's it's extremely well put together. I definitely liked it. It's got a good message, and the plot is great. The twist is fascinating. The concept is interesting. I do wish we had gotten more work with the characters. I think the work with the characters is an apt criticism to level at this film, and I kind of see exactly what it is you're saying in regards to that. For me, and as you alluded to before, I am probably the highest on this film uh, out of the three of us here. This film did wreck me by the end, and I will share with you exactly why. Um, As you may or may not know, my family did experience a personal tragedy earlier this year, and it got me thinking a lot about the choices that the Louise character makes towards the end of this film in a way that just utterly destroyed me emotionally. So what I also loved about this film is that you take, in my opinion, all of the best elements of contact, gravity, interstellar, and I think that you take all of those elements and you put it together and you come up with a film like Arrival. I mean, Will, you said so yourself and you too, Michael. This film is technically very well made. Bradford Young cinematography um, in some of these uh, flashback scenes has a real Terrence Malicky vibe about it that's just utterly gorgeous oh my god the shallow focus in some of those oh my god wait can yeah. we just talk about that cinematography for a second because sure i do agree like what you talk about when you see the house and the flashback and some of that that which i found very impressive seeing uh the daughter run around the yard in one scene it was very good but what i and again this is just me when they're in the ship and you see everyone like walking towards the aliens uh I like the brightness that you see there, but there was something that distracted me is when you see the close-ups of these people's faces, sometimes they're covered by shadows, which yeah, uh, for me, I was like, I'd like to see the person when they're talking. I felt like I was just hearing voices and it was... You're talking about like in the, in the bunker scenes, or right, with the, um, with, the, with the army troops and what have you? Yeah, I would say more in the bunker than in the ship. Yeah, there was some, definitely some stuff in the ship, too, when they're in the orange suits, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I think, I think when they're in the suits, they're deliberately obscured because that kind of conveys how the aliens see them, and then she has to remove them. You know, that's, like, that's a big point of the film. Um, I, I do agree in the bunker. I mean, that, I, maybe that would be my only complaint with young cinematography, but I think seeing the face also is something of a personal preference. I mean, in general, it is stupidly well shot. I think everything outside of the ship definitely is uh, spectacular. Yeah, but some of those ship shots are oh, stunning. Oh man, the way too. that they withhold from showing us the ship for the first, you know, twenty minutes of the film, and then you have that first shot with that swooping, swooping shot over the mountains with the mists rolling over. Oh, with the clouds and the mist oh, rolling in. Oh my god, that just took my breath away. And then Johan Johansson's score just brum comes on. And it's like whoa, you know, like I was. I was saying to myself, for moments like that, I would have loved to have watched this film on an IMAX screen, which mm-hmm. I which I didn't get a chance to do for this. I mean, I'm sure it's a moment that would have taken my breath away, more so than it already did. It really is on a technical level. From the sound work, as you said before, Will, um, I can't emphasize this enough. Johan Johansson's score, even though in my opinion, Max Richards' theme uh, that plays in the beginning and the end of this film is probably what is going to win 
Johan Johansson the Oscar. I don't think he wins. I think in general it is too, aside from Max Richter's work, as you said at the beginning and the end, I think it is too unorthodox a score for the overall Academy voting body to give the win to. Because if you think about it, Sicario was one of the first non-traditional scores. I mean, there's that and Mr. Turner are really the only ones I can think of ever they have nominated, at least in recent years, that are more about the aural experience and not about the melody. You know, I think they're still a little bit conservative in that voting body, and I don't think we see a film like this win there yet. It's very minimalist. All right, I just got to divert for just a moment in regards to that then. What do you guys think wins original score right now? You know, so the problem is there's a lot of contenders we have yet to hear anything from so far. Um, I think with the recent announcement of Silence having non-Howard Shore composers, uh, having some authentic Japanese music, if the film was well-received, that's the kind of thing. Probably will be very string-heavy, could easily win. Um... If Patriot's Day ends up being a hit and Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross compose a distinctive score, that could easily win. I can't give you my prediction yet because there's a lot of films that aren't on the table yet. But I do think Arrival is out of their wheelhouse as far as a win. Just going by what we've seen. I think of uh, the possible contenders, maybe Florence Foster Jenkins. No, not going to happen. <laughs> Let's go. All right, getting back to the film then for a second in this case. Um... I do think that this is Amy Adams' best performance, personally. I think that there is a lot of subtlety going on, and there is a lot that, on a rewatch, will reward the viewer as to the nonsense of her performance and what it is that she's doing. I think that there is a lot going on. I like the one shot when uh, they grab her kid briefly at the beginning uh, in the opening montage, you know, when she's just given birth and you see her face, the little twitch she has of just anxiety about somebody else holding her kid. Yeah. I thought that one, as the film goes on for reasons that are revealed later on, too, that's uh, a particularly nice, subtle bit on her part. Yeah. She was definitely very good in this, in my opinion. And I will be personally rooting for her to get that, um, what will it be, her sixth nomination? Yeah, it would be her sixth. Ugh. I will be rooting for it to personally happen. I, I really think that this is her show. I like that there's a deliberate choice to not have Forrest Whitaker or Jeremy Renner uh, overshadow her. This is her movie. Yeah, she definitely carries the whole thing. Absolutely. It's a very internal performance, though, for the most part. I'm afraid she ends up missing because of that. That's what makes it so good. It's very subtle. It reminds me of her performance in Her you know, which is my other favorite performance of hers. Really? So I am... She made that much of an impact for you in her? I thought she was incredible, yeah. I thought she She was... She barely registered for me in her. That's funny. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, in in both cases, it's it's when she goes less showy that I'm typically more impressed by her. Yeah. Kind of gives that warm, sad sense of empathy she gives in both movies. You know, I think she's uh, very good here. Like I said, she carries the film, and uh, Biff... And does a lot of good stuff there. But for me, I just felt like I was watching Dr. Amy Adams and not a character that I was able to lose myself in. Well, I think that's partly on the writing. I think that, you know, she, once again, we go back to other than, and they don't really explore what makes her make the choices towards the end. We just don't know that much about her as a character. 
But that's not her fault. You know, I think she gives what is on the page certainly a lot of warmth, empathy, and life. It's a great example of a, a fantastic director and great actors elevating the material, in my opinion. Um, because this script, I think, is light on character, very heavy on story. When the first couple of opening minutes you know, emotionally wreck you, unlike anything you've seen before since the movie Up, I think you're in the hands of a good storyteller. And that is exactly what Villeneuve has proven himself to be over the last couple of years. I mean, since 2010, this, this guy's been on a roll, man. And it's going to only culminate in 2018 with Blade Runner 2. See, I've only liked one of his films. I, I like Prisoners. I think that was very well done. But Sicario and now this just left me cold by the end. Well, okay. So the story left you cold. But you, you can't deny, because you did say before you think it's, the film's well-directed. You yeah, can't deny this man's talent. Use style. I think he just needs... Or maybe it's not him. Maybe... Just picking better screenplays and having them mesh together well, I felt like I was watching one department prosper while the other sort of was struggling. I mean, but I think he is a prime example, as Matt said. You know, I think Sicario is is a good script. I don't think it's a great script. I, I have plenty of problems with it, but it's a great film, I would argue, because his direction is just so mesmerizing and compelling. And a large part of that has to do with Roger Deakins' cinematography as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, the editing, I mean, it's... But he knows how to really ratchet tension, and I think he does know how to play emotions, and I think that's impressive. This is more more of a story film, though, undeniably. I mean, like, some of the dialogue and the character work is certainly lacking, though. I mean, that's undeniable. I will say this. Um, He has a very, very deliberate pace in this film that many traditional movie-going audiences may be turned off by. I, myself, even while I was watching it, recognized, okay, this movie's moving at a pretty slow pace, yet I'm not bored. Like, there's always something going on, and the story is constantly moving, and there's nothing that's making me, you know, fall asleep necessarily. But it is not a fast-paced film. I felt that way earlier this year, as a matter of fact. During a film, Matt, I know you didn't like very much, and I don't know if you saw it, Will, uh, the BFG. Yeah. Okay, I fell in love with the BFG, and what I really appreciated about that movie was, for the first 30 minutes or so, it really takes its time. It's not really doing a whole lot in terms of story. It's just being very languid, but just letting you set up this world that you're in, and I really appreciated it there. Not as much as I did here, not to, not to compare the two films yeah. aside from well, this. Well, but. because what I realized what Denis is doing with this film is that he's establishing mood and atmosphere. And he's emphasizing that more so than um, moving along the plot at a, a, you know, at a brisk pace. There isn't like going to be the flashy editing with the soaring, uh, tension-filled music that you get in a Michael Bay film out of this. This is definitely, as we're going to you know, talk about our top three segment uh, after this, a thinking man's sci-fi film. You know, and also, I would say, um, as far as the pacing goes, I found, I found the content very interesting. That moment when they're basically 
when Amy Adams is explaining to Forrest Whitaker why she has to start with basic vocabulary words instead of asking them obvious questions, you know, and she's emphasizing we need to show them the difference between you and your, not why are you Joe Alien here, but why are all of you here. Um, I thought that was fascinating. I mean, like, I... And I actually, I get why, because we mentioned if they had slowed it down any more, it probably would have been a problem for audiences. But I was really enjoying the scientific aspect of exploring that, and I was kind of sad that they uh, had to skip over a lot of it in uh, montage, ultimately. I mean, I get why. I think it would have taken far too long to show that. But I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff in the film. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, you know, one more criticism I will throw at the film is they do kind of rush over um, the language aspect. And like you said, there was a montage that they showed instead. And it got to a point where I knew that Louise understood the language, but I myself as the viewer could not really understand it myself. And Villeneuve recognizes this, and there is a moment in the film where subtitles are finally introduced to help us along with that. But... I did feel like, okay, it's not like the film's going to teach the audience an entire language in a sit-down. Like, that would be freaking nuts. You know, it's like, press the button, and it's like, download information into our brains, and all of a sudden, we can walk out of the movie speaking another language. It ain't going to happen. But uh, I do kind of wish there was a way that we could have gotten a more firm grasp on the language. But, you know, that's just me. Let's toss it off to final thoughts, grade out of 10, and Oscar potential, of which I'm sure we will have varying differences. Michael, let's start with you. For me, uh, look, I might be able to see this film again and get more out of it now that I could piece it together and know what it's going for by the end. I was impressed by the technical elements, like I said, but in the end, just left colder than I want it to be. I'm going to give it lots of credit for what it's trying to do, though, and give it a six and a half out of 10. In terms of Oscar prospects, look, I mean, maybe I'm not giving the Academy enough credit thinking that they're going to go for something like this. But at the end of the day, all I really see is two sound nominations. Wow. Okay. That's, that's brutal. Yeah. That's a bad day for the film. <laughs> all right. You know, maybe I'm wrong and it turns out to be ex machina and you got like screenplay or visual effects, but who knows? Uh, that's just where I am now. We'll see what the guilds have to say and what Ampus members think as they go along the season. Okie dokie. Will? Yeah, I, uh, I, I always will support intellectual sci-fi. And I did have some problems with character work in this film. But it was a mesmerizing experience. I really enjoyed it. I think it falls just short of greatness, which drives me crazy because it's still so good. I give it a good 7.5 almost an eight because I really enjoyed it. Um, as far as Oscar prospects go, I think it's a weak year for adapted screenplay and it is overall, I think an interesting and good screenplay if for nothing else, because it's story and it's twist are very interesting. Um, I would also say it certainly gets in for two sounds I personally think Bradford Young gets in for cinematography, although a lot can change. We'll see how the guilds go for. I think Johansson at least gets a nomination. They obviously love him. And I am going to say, as of right now, it gets into visual effects. Okay. 
I will say that I think Arrival is one of the best science fiction films that I have seen in the past couple of years. I enjoyed it more than Interstellar. I enjoyed it more than Gravity. I, you know, I, I mean, this is a weird comparison, but there are some similarities in terms of story structure. I like it more than Inception. I think that Arrival is Villeneuve working at top form to present a story that, as we said, isn't, you know, maybe the best screenplay, but the way that he tells the story, the way that it unfolds, for me, had a very, very deep personal uh, impact on myself that uh, there's no way that I could rate this any lower than a 9 out of 10. I, I, I just... I really, really loved the ever-living hell out of this film. Um, with that said, Oscar prospects. I see this getting in across the board and everything you could possibly imagine, minus uh, things like art direction, costume design, makeup. So, visual effects, both sounds, score, cinematography, film editing, screenplay, actress, picture, and I think Villeneuve does not get in for director. That is where I stand on this film currently at the moment. As you said before, Will, a lot can really change. And we could end up in a scenario like Michael was saying, where it's minimal amount of nominations, nothing really major at all. It's going to depend on how the Academy does respond to this film. It seems to me that a lot of people, more so than early words suggested are feeling the way you guys are feeling in that they do feel more distant from it. They do feel more cold about it and it isn't having the same really. Cause yeah, it feels like there's definitely a divide more, more people are coming out of the woodwork. I had it. seen almost nothing but raves on Twitter and online. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my Twitter feed is full of just people going nuts about the film. I had not seen that. Response. Well, let's think about it from this perspective. They've been, you know, talking about in all of their trailers how the film has a 100% Rotten Tomato score, but it doesn't anymore. It's down to like a 93. I think the more people feel comfortable about coming out and saying that it isn't necessarily their favorite film, I think more and more people are saying, you know what? Yeah, I did have some problems with it. I'm not going to hop on the bandwagon like everybody else. That's just my perception of how I feel it's been going down right now. But either way. I hope it does really, really well. It seems like it's doing okay at the box office. Hopefully, word of mouth keeps it going strong. With that said, I really, really, really want to get into a spoiler talk. So let's move into some spoilers here. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Okay, so, Michael, you alluded to earlier that you needed some time to piece together... um, the film after it was over. Tell me, when did you realize that the flashbacks were not flashbacks, but flash forwards? Honestly, and uh, this is just totally what happened. I had to leave the theater and think about it for a few minutes because I just knew something something didn't feel right, but I really didn't connect it when I was in the theater. So what I did was I uh, went to just read a synopsis of the short story to maybe see if there was anything that would fill in the gaps. And then I went, oh, so that's what was going on. So I guess the film just didn't convey that to me, that it was a different timeline going on here and that the ending would put it all together. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Will, what about you? What was the moment that you realized? Honestly, I, I knew there was a twist, but I didn't expect that until the film pretty much gave it away when she's like, who is this child? You know, I mean, that very much took me by surprise when it happened. And on one level, I was like, oh, shit. On the other hand, it did feel like it took away the only interesting bit of character work we had about Adams, you know, because that would have explained why she was so calm walking into the lecture hall when everything started and was kind of going about her daily day because she's used to acting like nothing's wrong. Which brings me to my next question. Did she know if she, I mean, at some point she had access to all that would ever happen and all that had happened. Did she know on some level what was going to happen because she could see time when Forrest Whitaker first comes to meet her. No, I don't think that happens until she has the one-on-one meeting with, um, was it Abbott or Costello? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember which one. Yeah, but when she just has the one-on-one conversation with the subtitles, um, and then she emerges from that visibly shaken and Jeremy Renner's putting the blanket on her, um, I think that's when it all finally starts to click. Obviously, there are moments beforehand um, that we interpret as flashbacks, but yeah, I don't think that. Um, I don't think that she has the eureka moment until then, in my opinion. Um, obviously, the flashbacks all start occurring once the aliens do arrive. But what I also found very odd was why was it only happening to her? prior to her actually having that one-on-one meeting and then i realized oh well the aliens always knew what was going to happen too that she would be the one to emerge forward to them and you know i thought that the aspect of one of the abbott and costello aliens like i said i can't remember which one um willingly going through death uh to save the two of them even though they probably knew what was going to happen it, it, I thought that was very beautiful and very much in tying in with Luis's decision at the end of the film um, to indeed have her child, despite knowing what was going to happen. Um, it gets into some, some pretty heady stuff, and I'll just quote uh, Jeff Daniels from uh, Looper. This time travel shit will fry your brain like an egg if you think about it too much. Um, it's... It, but it, to me, though, the film has such a beautiful, beautiful message behind it that I, I don't mind trying to decipher it because I think that it's well worth it. I knew that there was a twist coming at the end, and I did spend much of the film thinking about what that would be. So when we have the scene when she's talking to one of the aliens with the subtitles, what I kept thinking all along, because I knew it was going to connect back to the the daughter in some way, I thought the aliens were going to be like, the ghost of her daughter or some... Con- some contact mm, level shit? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, that's when I thought it was like all straightforward. I didn't realize we had different timelines and different ways of perceiving time. So I thought it was going to be like a version of her daughter coming back in alien form to warn her about something coming to Earth. Oh, that would have pissed me off, actually. Yeah, that would have been well, horrible. Actually, that's what I th- would have found more appealing. Really? Y- you, yeah. What? Why? That sounds awful. I don't know, I feel like you could have tapped into emotion in a different way there, and maybe 
gotten a viewer like me more engaged than here's what i will say about that if they would have gone into this whole plot line of what is supposed to happen three thousand years from now and somehow the daughter the ghost of the daughter tied into that i, I mean i could buy into that being a plot uh a plot point but that that just opens up the movie to a whole other avenue of story that it just doesn't have time to tell um yeah i don't i don't think that would have worked it sounds good on the page, but executionally, I don't know how you pulled that off. And that's really where I thought it was going. How about these two lines during towards the ending of the film that I alluded to early in the review? Oh, the one that um, the one that first got me is when Renner goes, "You know, it wasn't meeting the aliens that really surprised me. What really surprised me, and we're like, no, he's not going to say it. He's not going <laughs> to say it. Was meeting you. I was like, oh, oh, God." Um, that, and then I don't know why, but my theater burst out laughing in the final montage. I'm on the edge of my seat with emotion. I'm really feeling it. It's the film has made it abundantly clear that Renner is the father. And then he just looks at the camera and goes, you want to make a baby? And I'm just like, oh, and my theater just burst out laughing. Cause it was like the phrasing of that, the delivery. And it was in just the middle of this beautiful emotional moment. And I almost couldn't quite bounce back from that to get back in the emotional. Did, did the phrasing of that not seem weird to anyone else in the delivery? Like, did that not take you out of the moment for a second? Because it was pretty clear what, ha I mean, short of like, I mean, sh honestly, the film could not have made it any more obvious, even without saying that, if they had shown them having sex. I mean, it it was already telling visually what was going on. And that line, the phrasing, it was so weird. I mean, I feel like, do you, do you want to have a kid or, you know, anything like, I don't know. That, that That's me nitpicking, of course. But it did kind of take me out of a otherwise very emotional moment. What would you guys think of... Uh general zhang uh, the chinese general and um his wife's dying words and you know how he kind of like gave her the information so that she could remember to tell him in the in the past i mean oh just even describing it it's like i said before some really trippy heady stuff but that's where i started to get lost to be honest with all of that i was trying to think how does he tie into this again, and what's going on, and how's she with the phone call? And I will admit, I was very confused myself, Michael, in regards to because the, the twist had not yet been revealed, and so I'm still trying to figure out how everything is kind of tying together. Ultimately, I thought no, I thought the twist had already been revealed. Oh, by that point, yeah, I'm I'm almost certain it had because earlier on she she had asked the aliens who is this girl. Oh yeah, see now I'm one of those people that. It took me a while for the twist to actually sink in. Like, I didn't... I, okay, like, the, I was so whisked away by the movie and so, like, en, enwrapped in it that I didn't actually have my eureka moment until I actually physically saw Jeremy Renner standing outside on the porch and he came into focus from the uh, from Bradford Young's uh, cinematography. Oh, no, okay. No, yeah, no, I... Uh... Because once she said, basically established she didn't know who the kid was, and then, they, and then you're like, oh, okay, daddy's a scientist, you know, they're saying things like that. Mommy and daddy talked to the, uh, what was it, the animals, monsters or yeah. whatever? Yeah, and like I, uh, I, you know, like I told him something that 
about you that he didn't want to hear. You know, like those things, the minute she's like, who is that kid? I was like, okay, he has to be the father. And they, they were playing up the relationship aspect by the end. By the way, I, I did not feel like the relationship was well established. Yeah, no, you said that earlier in your review, and I understand, I understand what you mean by it. I did think while watching it that they were going to have um, not a romantic relationship, but more of like a respect, uh, teamwork, understanding between the two of them. Um, I did not expect it to get romantic, and I think I was thinking more along the lines of a film like Sicario. Mm. And how he empowered Emily Blunt's character to not fall into that romantic subplot aspect uh, as well. And so when I did realize, oh, they're really playing it up that, you know, Jeremy Renner really cares about her. I was like, all right, they're probably going to fall in love by the end of the film. But maybe they won't lay it on in a very heavy handed way. I still expected Villeneuve to handle it with like subtlety. Uh, But yeah, those two lines will... Yeah, it was a little much. I'm not going to lie. Little much. But I, I I blame the screenplay for that more so than Villeneuve. I, I still think that the way he executes the big reveal and the way that he gradually tells the story leading up to that emotional climax, I do think is some of the best storytelling I've seen this year. Oh, absolutely. Personally. And in the unlikely event, Eric Casario or someone who knows Eric Casario is listening right now, I want it to be stated that I think it is a damn good screenplay, despite my problems with it. Um, and it is a remarkable, you know, I, I, I had my doubts about whether or not the guy who wrote the Thing remake and a Final Destination film could do a really intellectual sci-fi. And the answer is yes. Problems aside, it is a well-written screenplay. Yeah, it is. Let's head over into our final uh, uh final segment of the show here and that is our top three favorite intellectual sci-fi films okay i'm counting one two three four five six seven eight nine ten you got a straight man everything okay everything's fine so we just got finished discussing Arrival, and being that it is a thinking man's sci-fi film, or thinking person's sci-fi film, got got to represent all people, um, I thought it would be really, really appropriate to talk about our top three favorite intellectual science fiction movies. And so, with that said, uh, Michael, why don't you tell everybody what your criteria was for this, and then... Reveal to us what your number three pick is. Okay, so when I hear the term intellectual sci-fi, I automatically get a little bit intimidated because sci-fi is not a genre that I necessarily love. I'll go to see something like Alien or Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, and it's all well and good in the moment, but it really doesn't resonate with me. And then when we say intellectual sci-fi, something like an Ex Machina or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind... I have the same response to that, too. It's just not a genre that necessarily is a favorite of mine. It doesn't really resonate in the same way that it does with others. So when looking at my top three intellectual science fiction films, quote-unquote, here, I wanted to do something that captured a little bit more of my own taste and fell into the magical realism element more than the science fiction element. 
So what I came up with, uh, and I'm going to give credit to Will first because he came up with the term Schwartz films the other day. Films that uh, I guess are Michael Schwartz films. The number three pick on my list of science fiction films is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, huh. So I see what you're doing here. You're blending fantasy with science fiction in a yeah, way. That works. Yes, which I think there is a bit of a little science science fiction element in Willy Wonka. It's, uh, you know, let's consider not just some class struggle issues going on in this town of, I guess, this London that it's set in. But, uh, you know, you also have the whole thing with the behavior of the children in that story. But when you go into the factory, you have these uh, trippy sequences that you wouldn't really see anywhere else. And I guess you could classify it as a family movie or a children's movie. But there are some elements, I think, of science fiction or magic there that uh, might fit the mold. Is it intellectual? Maybe not so much. But you know what? In terms of sci-fi films that connect, I think that one... uh, Definitely meets the criteria in some strange way. Well, well, well. Two naughty, nasty little children gone. Three good, sweet little children left. Hurry, please. Long way to go yet. Wait a minute. Must show you this. Lickable wallpaper for nursery walls. Lick an orange. It tastes like an orange. Lick a pineapple. It tastes like a pineapple. Go ahead. Try it. Mmm, I got a plum. Grandpa, this banana's fantastic. It tastes so real. Try some more. The strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. All righty. Interesting choice. I can't wait to hear what else is on the list there. Uh, Will... What's your criteria, and what do you have for number three? I mean, sci-fi, I tend to go more as far as my criteria as just the sci-fi genre. It's no secret that although I am into more serious dramas as far as films go, sci-fi is what first got me into film, and I always have a weak spot for good sci-fi. So I have a long list of films I wish I could give here. You may not call Serenity intellectual sci-fi, but it deserves an honorable mention if you, even if it doesn't make it here. Uh, Jurassic Park, The Thing, The Martian, Gravity. You know, there's a lot of films I would I would say could go here. I think of intellectual sci-fi as I think you phrased it before we started the podcast, Matt, something that's not Independence Day, you know, sci-fi that is handled with some subtext or, you know, unique concepts that are delivered for reasons other than blockbuster joy. So mine I'm going to choose is certainly a sci-fi film. It is a dystopian future with not existing technology necessarily, but it is gritty, realistic, and close to home. That is Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men. This was broadcast an hour ago. We have to assume it's just a matter of time before they identify the rest of us, which includes you, Theo. Why is he here? He's not fish. He's not one of us. I want him here. Key wants him. He stays. Now, we all agreed to deliver Key to our brothers and sisters in the Schumann Project. Right. But now we've got to reevaluate that position. No, there's no need. We move forward with the original plan. Yes. 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 Yes
Hey, she'll never make it. The police are looking for her. We can find a way. It's what Julian wanted. We'd be risking the girl's life. Listen, listen. She belongs here. And this baby is the flag that could unite we us all. We never use this baby for political purposes. My baby's not a flag. Make it public. What? What? Excuse me. You should make it public. Great choice. I love this movie. There's a lot of reasons we can say it's great. Chief among them, it is astonishingly shot. There are two just some long takes that are some of the best long takes in history, both the one in the car. The opening and the car sequence. Yeah, the car is insane. And then the, uh, the shot in, towards the end during the battle which is like an eight minute long tracking shot that's going into buses, into tenements, upstairs, downstairs, never losing focus. It's insane. It's mesmerizing. That was Emmanuel Lubeski? It's Lubeski, yeah. Yeah. Of course. And so on top of being well shot, the sound design's great. The way it uses kind of 70s rock songs is fascinating. You know, you have such melancholy notes from Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. And then whatever that John Lennon song it closes with are, um, it takes some really bold narrative choices as far as, you know, dispatching characters earlier than you think and characters you don't think will die either. And it's just generally an interesting concept, not to mention it came out 10 years ago, but it's as timely as ever with countries' fear of immigration, which it really you know, taps into and has a lot of political commentary in regards to. So it's, it's a masterpiece, in my opinion. And anyone who likes sci-fi should see it. Anyone who doesn't like sci-fi should see it. Because it is only sci-fi in the strictest sense of the word. But it's so good. I totally 100% agree with you. This is my favorite film of 2006 I, I i cannot stress enough how much i adore that film i think that it is clive owen's best work i think it's um i don't I, you know it's funny emmanuel lebeski has done such incredible work since then but for the time i i could not have think of a more well shot film i had ever seen in my life at the time and i think it's also personally i think it's quaron's best film so yeah, I, great choice. I love Children of Men. Uh, for my criteria, so, Will, you said this before, it's basically anything that's not Independence Day. Um, there's a lot of films that meet that mold, as you said before. So what I'm going to do is this. is I'm going to have a very obvious number one, uh, which is irrefutable. It's just, it's it's got to be there. Uh, and the other two films, I'm, I've decided to uh, talk about them. Uh, being that this is an awards podcast, and these two films did not receive any Academy Awards, so I think that they should be brought up. Uh, number three is 2012's uh, science fiction film Looper, directed by uh, Ryan Johnson, who is going to be helming Star Wars Episode Eight uh, next year. And this film is with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, Bruce Willis, Emily Blunt. Sun's turning into your eyes. Too strange. Your face looks backwards. Yeah. So do you know what's gonna happen? You done all this already? As me? 
I don't want to talk about time travel. Because if we start talking about it, then we're going to be here all day talking about it, making diagrams with straws. We both know how this has to go down. I can't let you walk away from this diner alive. This is my life now. I earned it. You had yours already. So why don't you do what old men do and die? Why don't you just take your little gun out between your legs and do it? Boy. Let me tell you, it's one of the films that when I try to uncook the plot, as I alluded to uh, earlier, that Jeff Daniels line, this time travel shit will fry your brain like an egg. It's one of those movies that every time I watch it, um, the deeper you go down the rabbit hole, the more complex it becomes. But ultimately, it's about how uh, these guys named, uh, you know, loopers um, essentially kill people um, that you know, are being sent back from the future. And it's it's such heady stuff. It's insane. And so Bruce Willis gets sent back, and that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's actual future self. And they give Joseph Gordon-Levitt this, like, makeup. He changes his voice a little bit so that he can kind of, sort of, resemble Bruce Willis a little bit. And there are some aspects to that that do work, some that don't. But, I mean, it's an admirable attempt, at least. But what I really appreciated with this movie was um, how the story kind of takes a turn in its second half and really becomes about Emily Blunt and her son on this isolated farm. And really, you start to understand that the whole film is tracking the course of the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character and his character arc, how he becomes like this uh, selfless, um, arrogant prick to somebody that's willing to ultimately um, give himself up for a much greater cause. And I really, really um, appreciated this film a lot when it first came out. It entertained uh, me fully, and I had a lot of fun with it ultimately. So, Looper. Good pick. You know, and what broke my heart about that is I remember in 2012, I told myself it wouldn't happen, but I'd be lying if I didn't get caught up in the hype on this. There was a lot of traction for Ryan Johnson to get a screenplay nomination. He got in with the WGA, NBR. You know, it was a weak year for screenplay, and everyone said it was either that or Flight getting in for screenplay. And I knew the anti-genre bias was going to bite it, but Looper had a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, and Flight had a low 70. And a lot of people thought it was going to happen because it had the precursor love, but it ultimately just missed out. It was so close. Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely, I do. Definitely. And it did break my heart a little bit. I I, I actually thought that Ryan Johnson had... I mean, it's it's the film that ultimately got him the Star Wars gig, um, along with Breaking Bad, of course. But, you know, I mean, without this film, Ryan Johnson would not be where he is right now. And, hey, you know what? Good for him. <laughs> All righty. Um, Michael, number two. Okay, number two pick on the sci-fi list. Uh, Here's a fun fact for both of you. Did you know Woody Allen made a sci-fi film? I did. Sleeper, yes. No, actually. What? Aside from Sleeper. Did you know this? Uh, I'm ready. Hit me. So, number two sci-fi film on the list is Purple Rose of Cairo. What? Yeah? Hear me out. Okay, I'm I'm listening. for now, but uh, later I have an appointment, or uh, should I say rendezvous. <laughs> Good for you. Where'd you get the funny suit? 
What, this? Yeah. You coming from a costume party? <laughs> no! No, I'm Tom Baxter of the Chicago Baxters. Explorer, poet, adventurer. Just back from Cairo, where I uh, searched in vain for the legendary Purple Rose. How about that? Well, who are you? My name's Emma. Oh, that's lovely. What do you do, Emma? I'm a working girl. And what do you do, you delicate creature? <sighs> Anything that'll make a buck. So I think that a lot of sci-fi films, uh, for the most part, take these characters who are living like very mundane lives or who are stuck in situations where they feel as if they can't get out of them. You know, you look at a Star Wars in a sense where you have Luke on this ranch who's like sort of dreaming of something better. And here comes along this magical element or scientific element to uh, sort of give a boost to their lives and uh, give them some sort of purpose. Okay? You following so far? I'm, I'm there. Okay. So what we have in... The Purple Rose of Cairo is this Depression-era tale. Mia Farrow is a waitress who is just, like, going about her day every day just trying to make ends meet and goes to the movies for comfort. And then you have this little magical element here. Again, I'm going to connect to sci-fi just for the purposes of this conversation. And out, literally out of the screen, walks the movie star played by Jeff Daniels and sort of adds this much-needed boost to her life. And it's in the sense a happy science fiction film, I would call it. You sort of see how a magical element here brings new purpose to her, and even though it ends in a very, or on a very melancholy note, it's about what goes on between the middle, or the beginning and the end. What's in the middle that makes her life a little bit different by the time the 90 minutes pass? Hmm. Okay. I'll give it to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'm, I'm, I, I love this uh, criteria right now. It's producing some picks that I'm just like flabbergasted by and I would never have expected yeah. to hear. But it's uh, – damn, this you is know, fun. If you're going to have a list like this in a genre that doesn't always do it for you, why not be a little creative with it, you know? Oh, already. Uh, Will, what is your number two? Yeah, number two is The Matrix. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. I don't know how anyone can argue with it. It's aesthetically probably one of the most influential films of the past 25 years. I would say nearly every sci-fi sci action film has been influenced by its visuals since The Matrix. The Matrix brought the color green back into the equation, essentially. Um, as an action film, it's obscenely cool. As food for philosophical thought... It was Inception before Inception was Inception, questioning the nature of what's real. It's often referenced in Buddhism lectures, for example, uh, about, you know, breaking out from a false reality. Uh, Hugo Weaving could not be a better villain. Keanu Reeves emotes more than usual. The visual effects are still astounding. The sound is still astounding. The score is hummable. 
it is a thrill ride, one of the best action films you can ask for. It is, you know, inspired hundreds of action scenes in the future and unfortunately gave us every comedy of 2000 through 2003 imitating the uh, stop and spin in the middle of space, you know, kick scene. But it's Shrek, Shrek, Kung Pao, scary movie, you know, everything imitated that moment. But it was so cool at the time. So it's an unusually intelligent film. It is tailor-made to hit your primal emotions and you enjoy it. It's got to be The Matrix. All right. Uh, For me, my number two film here is Duncan Jones' brilliant film, Moon. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. No, it's not okay. I I fucked up Fairfield. I fucked up your model. I don't know what's wrong with me. I got got a temper. I got to do something about it. Yes, you do. Hey, can you turn that off for a second? I want to talk to you. Can you turn that off? Listen. Listen. I wasn't supposed to. I'm... Uh, I'm trying to tell you something. Lunar instructed Gertie to. Listen to me. I wasn't supposed to find you. I absolutely, absolutely wish that Sam Rockwell had gotten some more traction the year that this film had came out for Best Actor. I think that it still stands as his best performance that he's ever given. And I think that as far as a debut film goes, this is a really, really fantastic effort from Duncan Jones. One that he has not yet matched with uh, Source Code and, yeah, definitely not with Warcraft. But (laughs) regardless of which, um, I I really don't want to get into it so much um, in case if people have not seen it, if you've heard of it. Um, and you definitely have not been spoiled by the film's uh, twist. Uh, I, I definitely just want to recommend Moon out to you. Um, if nothing, just to hear um, the incredible score uh, that plays throughout the film. Um, and also to see Sam Rockwell's uh, best performance. I, I think that the movie is perfectly well executed and uh, it was deserving of like I said, if not that score nomination, please just make Sam Rockwell happen one time, just once. I, I really think that that man is one of our best character actors and definitely deserves some recognition from the Academy at some point. Undeniably agree. And now for number one. And Michael, before you unveil the number one, were there any other runners up? I, I'd love to know if there was any other films you could think of uh, during when you were putting this together. You know what? Uh, Not runners-up in the sense of the criteria that I used, but what I will say is that films such as Gravity and E.T., which definitely fit the more traditional mold, I do love. Gravity, though, I don't consider to be science fiction because that's a film that I feel like, give or take a few things, could potentially happen. Like, there's no aliens in it. There's nothing really out of the ordinary. It's just sort of a survival tale that just happens to take place outside of this planet. It's more a character piece, in my opinion. I'll, I'll give so you that. That's why I didn't put it on this list. Uh, that's a that's actually a really good good observation. Yeah, that's more of a drama in my mind, and uh, with Sandra Bullock's character at the heart of it. 
And as for E.T., that's, uh definitely has a science fiction element to it, more than the titles I've been providing today. But I just felt like it was such a title that uh, you see thrown around so often. I do love it so much, that movie. But uh, that just didn't make the list because I felt like people already know it. Yeah. So, uh, okay, as for number one, we're actually going to go back and do some Oscar history first. 1964 Academy Awards, or I'm sorry, 1965 Academy Awards honoring the films in 1964. You have a film coming out that year. It's up for Best Picture, Best Director as well, and it's a film about if it's following the world that's on the brink of collapse, but it's still a comedy. Do we know what this film is? Any guesses? Mary Poppins. Yes. God damn it. Wow. Also happens to be the year of Dr. Strangelove. That's where I was trying to throw you off here. <laughs> oh, you, you! When you said Schwartz films, or, yeah, I knew I, I, I knew you would not pick a Kubrick film. This was going to be Mary Poppins. Yes. Oh my gosh! You are the father of Jane and Michael Banks, are you not? I said you are the father of Jane and Michael Banks. Well, well, yes, of course. I mean, uh, you brought your references, I presume. May I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea, to my mind. Is that so? We'll have to see about that then, won't we? Now then, the qualifications. Item one, a cheery disposition. I am never cross. Item two, rosy cheeks. Obviously. Item three, play games all sorts. Well, I'm sure the children will find my games extremely diverting. May I, this paper, where did you get it from? I thought I'd toy it up. Excuse me. Item four. You must be kind. I am kind, but extremely firm. Mary Poppins. The world is on the brink of World War One, And just like we talked about with Purple Rose Cairo, it's uh, people living these mundane lives and just going day to day, doing what they do. And along comes a magical figure who just transforms everything. Doesn't just come out of uh, a fantasy world, but brings them into it, in a sense, for a little bit. And... Uh, you know, I could go on about Mary Poppins. I know we've talked about it before. Uh, but it's a film that has meant so much to me in my entire life. I just grasped onto it in early childhood. It started my love affair with Julie Andrews. And it's just played a very big role throughout the course of my life. And is it sci-fi? That's up for you to decide. But it made this list, and I'm happy to talk about just how much I love that film I just realized that if we do any more top three lists about family films, animation films, fantasy films, musical films. They will films, always come back to Mary Poppins. Yeah, we're, we're going to just have to listen to Michael talk about Mary Poppins over and over and over again. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a never-ending loop that's always going to occur. <laughs> when you do like the six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon, but for genres, it always comes back to Mary Poppins. Jesus Christ. I, I think it should be pointed out because we've discussed this before. Mike loves Mary Poppins. We discovered recently, obviously I had some traumatic experience in my childhood with Mary Poppins because for lack of a better word, Mary Poppins triggers me. Whenever somebody mentions Mary Poppins, I get this chill down my spine and just get anxious and on edge. I haven't seen the film since I was probably four years old. I barely remember it. But something about Mary Poppins gets under my skin and freaks me out to the point I haven't revisited the film since I was little. And then it's my, one of Michael's all-time favorite films. So this is, 
an interesting thing going on here right now. Yeah, we're talking like top five favorite of all time. So the, I think uh, we opened up something for Will that he hadn't realized about the film and a connection to him, which is very interesting. This is by far the most fascinating top three list I think we will ever do. <laughs> all right, Will, runners up and number one. There's a lot of runners up. Um, Blade Runner, District 9, Serenity, The Martian, The Thing, if you want to put it on there, Jurassic Park, if it hadn't kind of crumbled in the third act, Sunshine undeniably would be there, Ex Machina. You know, the, even if you want to kind of call it intellectual, I would almost say Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, there are quite a few in this genre that are underrated. Brazil. Um, I am ultimately going to go with one that is not strictly speaking sci-fi, but kind of works and often makes people's list of sci-fi films, which is one of the films that has emotionally hit me hardest over the years, and that is Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Hi. Hi. You figured Show your face around me again. I guess I thought you were humiliated. You did run away after all. I just needed to see you. And, uh, yeah? I'd like to um, take you out or something. You're married. Not yet. Not married. No, I'm not married. No. Look, man, I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm high maintenance, so. I'm not gonna tiptoe around your marriage or whatever it is you got going there. If you wanna be with me, you're with me. Okay. I know Mike touched on it earlier, but it is, strictly speaking, a science fiction film. It involves a technology that does not exist, and it walks the line between fantasy and reality with all these hallucinatory dream states. So I and others place it in that genre. It is Jim Carrey's best performance. It is one of Kate Winslet's best performances. It's one of the most inventive and touching screenplays I've ever seen. Seamlessly meshes state-of-the-art visual effects and pra uh, practicals with reality on a low budget. It's got a great score. It's got a great soundtrack. And at least in my case, it deeply hits me in the feels. I, 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 this is an all timer for me. I mean, we're talking like favorite movies of all time right now. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind fits that for me. I, I can't explain to you the feeling that this film gives me when I watch it. I just can't. It's yeah something that is just a. I have such a profound connection to this film. And everything about it, I like every element, the story, the acting, the editing, the music, everything. To me, this is a perfect film. A perfect film. Glad to see it represented. Yeah, no, it, it breaks my heart. I get so stressed watching it. And then a certain inter interpretation of the ending, I don't want to spoil, also breaks my heart. But it's... I might have, yeah, I've watched it like four times and it doesn't fail to gut me. Oh, one I forgot to mention too, Gattaca. You know, it doesn't get talked about much, but I think that's a pretty underrated film. Gattaca definitely is uh, one that definitely does not get mentioned as much as it should. Alrighty, well, as far as my runners-up go, I will echo every single film that Will said, uh, just to not sound repetitive. I am going to list as my number one 
Thinking Man's favorite sci-fi film of all time, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Of course. No other film in the history of cinema has inspired more thought and more written essays, discussions over beer, liquor, you name it, than this film. I think I have rewatched it more than any other movie I have ever seen. I have watched it in slow motion. I have, I have taken this film, which is what, like 142 minutes long, and it took me something along the lines of uh, like four hours to watch because I was pausing it and looking at the frame and dissecting it. And I mean, this is. This is a film that is never, ever going to be, quote-unquote, cracked. And people will say that they have cracked what this film is ultimately about, but therein lies the beauty of it. There is so much amazing, astonishing imagery in this film that really, it just speaks to everybody differently. Um, it's something that Terrence Malick, I feel, tries to capture a lot with his films where he presents images and however you want to interpret those images, that's how you interpret them. Well, Kubrick, I think, did have a message and I think he was deliberate in what it was that he was trying to you know, say in this film, but it's told in such a magnificent and obscured way that we, as a society, all these years later, have still not figured it out and never will figure it out and I'm very okay with that because hot damn does it inspire some damn good conversation so 2001 A Space Odyssey gotta mention it and for the life of me I still can't believe it still stands as the as the film that won Stanley Kubrick his Oscar for visual effects of all things but hey that's just sometimes the way this stuff works out alrighty with that said uh, Michael, where can they find you on Twitter? You can find me at Mike Movie. Will? You can find me at Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at nextbestpicture.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of a review of Arrival and also our top three favorite intellectual science fiction films. We will see you next time on nextbestpicture.com. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.